I think it would probably be to have them understand and embrace what probably feels like to them, and in some ways is, their disproportionate responsibility to lead in it. Why do I put it that way? Well, I think it was Condoleezza Rice who said that the original birth defect of this country was slavery. If that's true of the country, it's also true of the church. That despite a more sort of racially egalitarian beginning in many church communions, the church pretty quickly took the route of the culture in its acceptance of racial attitudes and white supremacy and slavery and later Jim Crow segregation and things of that sort, that the church did not go through those periods unscathed. And, and because the church, many in the church, not everyone of course, but many in the church were, were um, active participants in that, I think it lies upon the church um, to, in the resources of the gospel, examine its heart, examine its culpability, if there is any, or at least examine its responsibility, right, in our generation, to chart a different path, a, a path more consistent with the gospel and the one new man that Christ creates in himself, in Ephesians 2, to live out the reconciliation, the peace that Christ has accomplished in his body on the cross. Um, to discover at deeper depths that, that those are indicatives. Christ has already done it. And it's for us now to do everything to maintain the unity of the spirit and the, and the bond of peace. And to embrace with joy the opportunity, the responsibility, uh, and the resources in the gospel to lead out on that. To not shrink back in fear. To not um, coddle your hurts. To not be fragile. Um, to take the risk of being called unpleasant things that you would rather not be called and, and don't think you are, to take the risk of rejection, to accept the risk of um, saying the wrong thing or doing the wrong thing, to just own it. You're going to mess up. But there can't be any reconciliation, deep and lasting, uh, if, if my white evangelical brothers and sisters don't own this, and not, as a, not merely as a mercy to others, as a kind of benighted paternalism to others, but own it as a people who are complicit, like all the rest of us, and own it as a people who need that restoration themselves um, as much as the, as the others may need kindness from one another. And so if I could ask one thing, it would be lean into it, as, you, as, as Christ's calling upon your life in the same way that is his calling upon my life. Well, if you have been uh, keeping up with the news this week, uh, you know this was an explosive week for our nation. Tension and frustration, anger and rage have reached a boiling point. And when you combine the COVID lockdown recent racial deaths and rioting in the streets of about 30 American cities and <clears throat> even death this morning I saw. As a pastor, I came to this week not even sure what to do this week. My job as your pastor is to shepherd our people, speak the word of God and apply it to the world we live in now. Not a world we wish we had, not a world of the past, but our world of instant viral video news, of ongoing racial tension, of political upheaval and the pandemic. And as I approached this week, it felt futile and impossible to think about just to go on to the next passage of, of 1 John and act like nothing was going on outside of my own life, my own front door, and, and outside of the seclusion of Canby. An apathy to what is going on in our nation was not an option for me this week, I felt, and it really was an excruciating week in some ways for me as I went back and forth in my head over whether to preach our first John passage or to, to attempt to preach a standalone sermon that speaks to some of the crises of this past few weeks. And so Thursday night, actually, we made, we made the decision, David and I and ministry staff and even bringing the elders in a little bit to, to change 
gears and pivot for this Sunday. And I know many of you have had <clears throat> all kinds of emotions running through you. Probably from sadness to frustration to anger, watching all kinds of devastating events unfold. And so this morning, I'm going to attempt to preach to us on an uncomfortable topic. But as I read the words of a, of a black man, Philip Holmes, this week, as I read those this week, who Philip Holmes is the Christian vice president of communication at Reformed Theological Seminary, as I read his words, I thought, discomfort is the right thing right now. To be made uncomfortable is right. He said, as I reflect on the unjust death of these black image bearers and others before them, I'm deeply concerned about prevailing views and reactions and opinions coming out of the church. While so much progress has been made over the last decade, we still have such a long way to go. The more I observe the Christian commentary around race, the more I see that truths and realities surrounding race that seem obvious to me are not obvious to many of my white brothers and sisters. And I want to be the first to say this morning that as I speak, I can't speak as one who has experienced what life is like as a minority or a person of color or as an immigrant. Many of you listening have not had this experience either. Some of you have. So I realize some unique challenges and limitations this causes this morning to me. And I know I won't say everything on this subject this morning. That's not possible. And I probably won't say everything right, and I might even get something wrong this morning. But God grant me mercy and us mercy and grace to not let fear get in the way of truth. Let us not let discomfort get in the way of love. Philip Holmes went on. We should all be uncomfortable about the injustice in our country. For many Christians facing the reality that America still has a race problem is uncomfortable. Until we're able to listen to the cries of black advocates, sympathize with black mothers, and express righteous anger over dead black bodies, we might remain comfortable, but it's a poor substitute for the uh, love to which we've been called. Jesus Christ, Philip Holmes, is talking us about. Love that asks us to do uncomfortable things because it's willing to risk for right and for the sake of humanity and for the sake of, of justice. So I ask a question. Why are we so uncomfortable with the topic of discussing race? Why have so many churches been strangely silent over the years? Why have I, as a pastor, spoken so little on race for almost over, uh, over 20 years of ministry? for which I even need to repent of and do this morning. I know listening this morning uh, to this message, each one of you, each one of us falls into some category or maybe an overlap of categories that make this topic so uncomfortable for us. Here, here's some of them. Maybe for you it's fear. Fear of talking about race and racial reconciliation because as soon as you start talking about race, you're afraid people are going to label you as a, a, a lefty, far liberal, or a social justice warrior, and you've got that fear, and so you don't bring it up. Maybe for you, you fall into the temptation that we all have to make certain people invisible. Even Jesus' time, he addressed this. They had the same temptation. Remember, Jesus spoke the parable of the rich man and the poor man. The rich man would feast on great food in his, in his great home while he'd walk by the poor man who would lay outside his house where the dogs licked his wounds. And he would walk by. The man on the ground was invisible to him. But once that rich man had died and he was in Hades and this poor man Lazarus had died too, he cried out to Lazarus to bring him water from heaven where he was in Hades. And Abraham responded, Oh, rich man, you had your good things in life. Lazarus had bad. He's now comforted. You are in anguish. This, this man in life was invisible to him. Now he was seeking his comfort. Or think of as Jesus spoke of the good Samaritan who helped the, the beaten man by the side of the road. But Jesus spoke of the priest and the Levite that walked by on the other side of the street from the beaten, dying man. Maybe you think, well, this is not directly affecting me, so 
you know, why does it really matter? And so maybe it's become invisible to you. And so maybe they are invisible to you. Whatever that other might be. Maybe for you, you feel a lack of confidence in how to even talk about or deal with a topic like this. I mean, what can I say? I, I, I don't know much about it. Or here's another category. Maybe you feel, well, even if I wanted to do something, what could I do? I mean, living in a largely white uh, can be, what can I do? There's nothing to do, so, so we don't respond. I, I can't fix it, so why try? So this morning, I just want us to acknowledge this is a challenge for everyone, and it's a challenge for me as I preach to be heard clearly this morning and to have my intentions to be clearly understood. That's going to be hard for me. It's also going to be easy to draw your own preconceived conclusions about a sermon like this. So try not to. Here's some thoughts on what I'm trying to attempt and not trying to attempt this morning. This is not an indictment on all of Bethany Church this morning, on all of Canby. It's not an attempt to put a guilt trip on everyone or, or even an attempt for me to even discern your heart. That's between you and the Lord. This is not an attempt to, uh, to look at er- uh, every police officer and indict them. There are many officers of integrity who are grieving what happened on these streets over these past weeks and these last few nights and now have to live with the fallout of that. This isn't an attempt for me at virtue signaling for myself so I could, the pastor can now feel good. Oh, well, now I've spoken about race. I'm all good. This is not an attempt to justify the riots, the destruction and death that have taken place in the aftermath of these horrible, tragic deaths. Violence by the public is never a godly response to violence. And history actually records that the peaceful race protests of the 60s garnered more sympathy from the population than the violent ones. What this is, is a pausing this morning. To listen to some words of people we don't often listen to. This is a pausing to listen to some stories we don't often hear. This is a moment to recognize that there are minorities and people of color and and immigrants at Bethany Church whose stories and experiences even at church have maybe not been quite like the white majority at Bethany. What has their experience been like? Have you ever asked yourself that? This is a pausing to look at pictures of people even we don't often see in our community. It's good to do that. This is a pausing to look at God's word and how it addresses our hearts on the issue of race. This is a pausing to have our consciences pricked, I pray this morning, and I've already prayed that. To have our hearts, your heart, probed to self-introspection. This is a pausing this morning to pray for justice, for peace and mercy from God above on our nation. This is a pausing to realize that the gospel demands from us that we be angry at evil. All types and abhor injustice. As Romans 12.9 says this, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Isn't it interesting that the first sign of genuine love in this verse is to hate? To be righteously angry with sin and evil? It's ungodly to be apathetic, even when something happens 3,000 miles away. It's ungodly to be, uh, and it's unloving to not, be angry when sin or injustice happen personally or here or across the nation or the world and and to have your heart uh, uh, melted and and lament when horrible things happen. Imagine if someone harmed one of your children and you responded with shrugged shoulders. You wouldn't, would you? And mere sympathy this morning is not enough. Well, some background on why we're talking about this this morning. Uh, we gave parents a little heads up. I'll be talking just a bit about the, the death of two uh, black men. No graphic detail, no images, no video, so you don't have to worry about that. But you may have some discussions that come from this that I think will be hopefully beneficial. Here's the background. In case you didn't know the news of the past week, there have been two viral video incidents of white on black murder that have taken place. And uh, as far as we can tell, they look unprovoked and, and totally ad- unjust. Ahmaud Arbery, if you remember, uh, uh, earlier in the year, the, uh, but the video just came out, being gunned down by two white civilians in a Georgia neighborhood. And George Floyd being restrained by the knee of a police officer on his neck, even while he cried out for breath. And for his mama, 
All the while, it seems, not resisting arrest after being accused of using a fake $20 bill. That's it. And there has been almost a unanimous outcry over these videos, even law enforcement themselves. William Johnson, executive director of the National Association of Police Organizations, which represents a quarter of a million police, uh, denounced the use of the force as egregious. We've also seen our nation unravel into chaos and protests have turned into riots. And life and property have been lost. And this morning now we know uh, uh, just a death has happened even. So you see the challenge in front of us this morning. We can't say everything, but we must say something. So I want us to do three, three, three simple things this morning. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to listen, pray, and speak. I want us to do those. Listen, pray, and speak. That's, that's what I'm hoping for us. So let's first talk about listening. Not only to God's words, but also to some words from a few African-American brothers and sisters in Christ, which I think is good for us to hear. The first God's word, as we come to God's word, it is clear the first thing we need again. We, we need this, I need this almost every day. To be reminded that all human beings are made in God's image. Uh, that means those you sit next to at church. That means those who you walk by at the store. That means those who go to the Canby Center. That's the black lady that stands on the corner of Ivy banging on the, the walk sign to, to, to walk across the crosswalk. You know who, who it is. All are made in God's image. Male and female are made in God's image. God said in Genesis 1.27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And I would go so far as to say that the beauty of our creative God is in the fact that we don't all look the same. We don't all look the same. Ahmaud Arbery is an image bearer. No more or no less than you or I. George Floyd is an image bearer. No more or no less than you or I. Each one of those men has been beautifully woven together by God. Each one of us has been, and, and each one of us has been given our skin, our flesh, our minds, our souls, our bones, our eyes, and God tells us to listen and love our fellow image bearers. We've heard that over and over again. We've heard that theme over and over again in First John. Remember our two themes we've been going over the, the past seven or eight weeks. Here they were. First one was believe in God. And love your neighbor. Those two themes. First John 2, 9 and 10 says this. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. What could be more clear? We're called to love Love those that look like us. Love lo those that look different. Love those that compliment us. Love those that annoy us. And sometimes the loving thing to do is to call sin, sin, to call injustice, injustice, even if it makes us uncomfortable. Sometimes it even means giving of ourselves and of our stuff to those less fortunate with less privilege. To those who didn't have such a far ahead start maybe as we did. 1 John 3 goes on. We've covered this verse. I think David did a couple weeks back. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So we listen to God's call again this morning to love those different than us. We may not have a large African-American community in Canby, but I know we are all around people different than us. And we do have two large and substantial different ethnic groups right here. A large Caucasian group and a large Hispanic Latino group. How might God stretch both of those communities and can be here in the future? Even as I know, Bethany Church in the past has done some great work uh, to and towards our Hispanic community. It's also inevitable, too, as Canby grows, it will look more diverse. It's inevitable. Are you ready for that? 
and okay with that? Ask yourself. Also, let's listen this morning how God shows no partiality as we hear in his word. Peter had to, to, to be re- uh, reckoned with this. Peter himself struggled with racism. As many Jews did in that day as the Gentiles were wrapped into the fold of God's family. And so after a vision that God gave Peter, uh, he, he spoke these words. He spoke. He couldn't remain silent. Acts 10 says, so Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Peter had to learn it. We do too. God does not show partiality. He's impartial. He looks at all humanity and sees image bearers. He, He loves and made, loving their differences even in their common humanity. Peter's words are true, and so that means no nation or people group has a special access or phone line to God. God does not love America more than Africa. God doesn't love white America more than Hispanic America or black America. How could God show partiality to anyone when salvation is by sheer grace? You didn't earn it, you didn't muster up the faith. It was all a gift from God from start to finish. What room is there for boasting in anything, Paul says. Paul says, what do you have that you did not receive? All is grace, all is gift, all is mercy. God is impartial. Well, listen to as well how God hates injustice and when people are crushed and oppressed, Proverbs 17, 15, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. And how will he defend the needy? Listen to those treated unjustly. Psalm 72, 4, may he defend the cause of the poor, of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. Listen to his desire for justice like flowing water from Amos 5. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Or from Micah 6.8, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with our God? That was our opening today as David read. Listen to his call this morning for us to look out for others' interests, not just mine or my community or even my church, but others. Philippians 2.4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to interest, to the interest of others, the other, the, the one different from you, the one you wouldn't normally think of. Who is that for you? Listen to how the gospel breaks down any claims at righteousness based on race, class, or gender. Galatians 3.28, Paul said, There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, that does not give us permission to say, well, you know, these problems, let, you know, we'll just, let's, let's not talk about race. Let's remove the racial issue. We have to talk about race. Because race is sometimes the motivating factor for injustice and violence between all races. All of them now. So no, we can't always ignore race or we'll never actually address the issue. Which is that we are different in some ways. And God has made us different in some ways. We just can't feel superior in our differences. And based upon and according to these differences, we have to acknowledge some people groups still today receive different treatment. I want to trust our black brothers and sisters in Christ and take them at their word. Many of them, if you've been on Christian websites this week, many of them have been speaking up and speaking out with grace, with love, with compassion, as we heard Thabiti speak at the beginning of this service, and we're going to hear some others. I want to take them at their word and trust their experience even if it hasn't been my own or yours. Listen to the voice of Philip Holmes again. We're going to hear him a few times this morning. 
He says, America, America still has a race problem. And even though it's not as blatant as the racism experienced by my ancestors, praise God for that, it's still threatening black lives across this country. We have to confront partiality by listening, learning, and engaging. It is real. It is present. And if Philip's right, it's threatening. Maybe not to you or I, but others around the, our nation and others in Canby. Listen to the voice of Kira from a, uh, a blog called Hey, Beloved Mama. It's a long quote, but it's worth it. We've got a few of those this morning. Voice. These are my four sons. Paul Jr., Joseph, David, and Noah. They're cute, funny, and brilliant. I love them. I birthed them. I nursed them. Sometimes they call me mama. One day they will be dark, tall, and strong men. Will you still admire those precious eyes and smile? Or will you decide that it's time to fear them? And now we weep for George Floyd, who died cuffed and unarmed on the street. And I wept as I listened to his cries for his mama. A man who resembles my father was so helpless and hopeless that he called for the first place of safety he'd ever known, his mama. He cried out for the one who saw him take his first breath, just as that very breath was robbed from him. Mama, we're not raising our boys to die on the streets because of hate and fear. We're raising them to be noble, God-fearing men who achieve their dreams, love their wives, love their children, grandchildren, even great-grandchildren. But will you let them? Or will you have them crying out for me instead, Mama? If your first thought was, oh, that's great, she's doing it right. I wish all black mothers would do it that way. Think about this. It's to suggest that if they would just raise their boys right, to act right, to respect authority, this wouldn't happen then. I want to let Holmes speak to that again. The view that I just described is a popular and a moral view that says the victim has to be a saint to receive sympathy. When we allow our view of justice to be persuaded by footage of the victim in his best moments or footage of him in his worst, we're not thinking biblically about justice. Was he a law-abiding person? Well, if an injustice occurred against him, it should not matter. Why? Because he was a person. In other words, what Holmes is saying there is that our image-bearing personhood alone is what gives us the value and, and should us to promote us to seek justice and fair treatment whether the person is law-abiding or not. You don't give up your personhood when you break a law. Listen to Christiane Enabwile, pastor of Thabiti, the video we showed at the bit, beginning of our service today. She's a pastor's wife. She's an author. She's a speaker. She's a Christ lover as she speaks on how these recent deaths have impa impacted the black community. She says, we recognize something of ourselves in them. They remind us of family and friends. We know it could have been us. So we lament. We mourn. We protest. We advocate. I wonder how many white people see themselves in Amy Cooper and in Gregory and Travis McMichaels. How many times have you held your purse or your child's hand tighter when you passed by us? How many times have you wondered if that appropriately masked black man was a threat to you? How many times have you refused to acknowledge the racist rumblings in your heart against African American and other peoples of color? How often have you tolerated racist comments and jokes and conversations at the dinner table, in the conference room, in the fellowship hall? Often my white friends don't seem to know how to respond to racial injustice. I think the first response, she says, is to look inward. See if there's any wicked way in you and ask the Lord to lead you in the way that's everlasting. The old ancient way. The way of truth and righteousness. So what do we do? We listen. We listen to the word of God this morning. We listen to some other stories Stories that are other than your own or maybe some you can, uh, of you can identify with the word said. To know that not everyone's experience is identical. To remind ourselves that real racism and prejudice still exist and to search my own heart for it. 
your own heart for it. So I encourage you, go look for some of these stories this week. Search for an article online by a Christian African American or or Latino or someone else. Purchase one of the books. We're going to post a few to our Facebook feed even right now for you. Purchase one. Do what you wouldn't normally do and read something that tells a story that's a lot different than your own. You know, if you can't enact great change, and maybe we can't in our corner here or in Canby, you can continue to have internal ongoing heart change. And I know God wants that for you. And when you listen to other stories and see faces and pictures like we have been this morning, you, when you put a face to injustice, what does it do? It softens the surface of your heart. Justice for all kinds of issues. You know, it starts in the heart of God and then makes its way into your heart and into my heart. And as Christy said, we just heard read, look inward and pray. Look inward and pray, because maybe you think today, maybe that is all we can do this morning. It's just pray. So let's turn from listening to praying. This is something we can do. So let's talk about praying. Something we can all do, whether white, black, brown, is pray, pray, pray. Pray for the things that we've just heard. Pray for justice to roll down like water. Pray that the rule of law would prevail in our cities tonight. Pray and ask God to give you righteous anger. Maybe you've responded totally apathetic and to this and other tragedies that take place. Why is that? Ask God to soften your heart. Pray and ask God, maybe, why, why you don't feel righteous anger at injustices of all kinds? I've been asking myself that question this week. Pray that God would give you opportunities to build bridges across cultures. Pray that that would happen through Bethany Church more and more. Pray that we would love the needy and the oppressed and, and have special eyes for that in can be. And even with our next door neighbors. Pray that we would look to the interests of others. And, and pray that God would do the work of Psalm 139. Pray it every day, as David said. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And, and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Pray even as hard as it is that God would reveal to you maybe the prejudices and racist rumblings in your own heart. Pray that. Why? Because we all have them. People of every color, of every nation, of every city, every person. Because humanity so desperately wants a righteousness of their own. It's our default mode. That's how you wake up in the morning. Every human, humanity so badly wants to find something to feel superior about. And so every human on this planet is capable of present prejudice and racism. Like I said, that's our default mode. It's to justify ourselves by some characteristic, and sometimes we use skin color. So pray. Pray for our nation this week. Pray that Jesus would be the most important face, thing, person, event, his work. Pray that it would be the most important thing in our cities, on our streets this week, in our hearts, in our minds. Pray that we'd see Jesus in the other. That is why we must pray. But that is why we must also speak. And speak gospel truth. Not only to others, but to ourselves. So let's finish with speak. Listen, pray, and speak. We must be open to speaking about hard things, injustices, even if they make us uncomfortable. I'm totally uncomfortable preaching on this this morning. And it was, like I said, an excruciating experience this week to think about, well, do we just stick to 1 John or do we step away for a morning? It's not easy to talk about hard things. We have to realize the call to Christianity, the call to be a Christian is, is not the call to be nice. I think we've exchanged the call to be loving with the call to be nice as Christians. Oh, yes, we should be kind. Oh, yes, we should be gentle. 
Yes, we should be gracious, but our call is the greater call to love. And love is being willing to remind ourselves of our sin. Love is being willing to speak hard things. Love is being willing to hear hard things. Even in the church, to hear hard things and not let your first instinct to be, I'm out of there then if they think that about me. No, to think even just for a moment, even just to say, okay, maybe, maybe, let me hear you. But what we need more than anything is to speak the gospel. Not only to ourselves, but to our culture, to our kids, to our neighbors, on our street. There is nothing, there is nothing but the gospel that can truly destroy the sin of racism. Nothing. First, if you're one who's hearing my message today and you're thinking, yeah, yeah, I've been a racist. Maybe you're so bold as even to think in your heart this morning, I am a racist. Do you know what the good news is? Jesus died for racism. Jesus died for all our crutches and idols of self-righteousness. All of them. So what do you do if that's you this morning? Repent and be forgiven. Seek the humility that only the gospel can bring to take yourself off your pedestal if you put yourself there based on something like skin color or class or financial background or education or job progress or the abilities of your kids, whatever it is. Repent and be forgiven. So see, it's loving. It's actually loving the racist to talk about the sin of racism. Do you get that? Or any other sin? To just keep quiet about it? Oh, it might bring about some uh, uh, less discomfort. It might make you feel better in your day-to-day life. But it's condemning someone to walk and continue to walk in that way, whatever the sin is, and then face the judgment of God for it someday. It's loving to speak about these things. And the gospel is the thing that changes our hearts, all of us. So this morning... Preaching on racism is not a distraction from the gospel. So please don't hear this morning, oh, he's just off on some social justice kick. No, no, no. This is a gospel issue. This is central to humanity and what it means to love. And the gospel is the only thing that keeps us from having to grasp at our own righteousness in ourself, which is the cause of racism. The gospel is what humbles us to examine and to root out our sin because you know when you look at your heart and uncover what you're, you're going to find there, you know you can't lose the favor of your Savior. It humbles us to admit our sin. It humbles us to truly love others in reconciliation. He is the Christ of reconciliation. Second Corinthians 5, I love these, this verse. Look forward to preaching on it someday to our congregation. This idea of reconciliation, that's the, that's the, the Bible story. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And that can only happen through the reconciliation of Jesus Christ on the cross. The bridge that was gapped by his death, by his sacrifice for us, and secured in his resurrection and proven to us. That reconciliation is possible. Here's what the verses say. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. We were reconciled to God in Christ. The hostile wall of our sin was done away with, so so that we could be ministers of reconciliation. Now, of course, Paul here is talking about reconciliation between God and man, But by extension, he's created one new man from all humanity. And that reconciliation between God and man is to be our pattern as we live out our lives amongst those who look different from us, who talk different than us, whose cultures are different than ours. The gospel gives us the one new man that Christ creates. The dividing wall of hostility has been broken down as it was between the Jew and Gentile on that day. It is to continue on today between all nations. 
there is hope in the gospel. The gospel also gives us hope today because I know some of you are feeling maybe despairing or cynical. The gospel gives us hope even when American society, it seems to be unraveling, and I would say it is actually. We are seeing the unraveling of our nation over these past weeks and I would say years, decade, last decade for sure. It's hard not to feel this way with the pandemic, with race issues, with lack of social trust, lack of institutional trust, the suicide rate going up, depression going up, political upheaval everywhere with an election coming in a few months. Don't slip into cynicism and despair. Don't let it happen. Don't let the enemy do that with you. The tomb is empty. Christ has risen. Do you know what that means? That means anything is possible, anything is possible, and all things, even racial tension, will become racial reconciliation. All things will be made new. So don't lose hope. Don't despair. Do the three things we've talked about this morning. And you will find hope. You will make a difference, even if it's in our small corner here in Canby. You will continue to change, and you'll move out into your life with hope and love and sacrifice rather than shrivel up inside our homes with fear and despair. So let's do it. Let's listen, pray, and speak. This morning, I'm going to let somebody else's voice close us. Our benediction this morning is going to be a prayer by Pastor John Piper, that, uh, the audio of that prayer. He prayed for Minneapolis and the events that are going on there, which is where George Floyd died and where the rioting has begun. But let this be a prayer for Portland too and for Canby and all the cities of our nation as you hear his words. It's a bit long. It's 10-minute prayer. If you want to check out now and step away, you can. We're wrapping up our service, but I would encourage you not to. His words are powerful. Let them be the prayer of our heart today as we close. We'll hear his prayer, and then we're done. We'll see you next Sunday for our drive-in service, weather permitting, at 10 a.m. God bless you. Almighty and merciful Father, hallowed be your name in Minneapolis. Revered, admired, honored above every name, in church, in politics, in sports, in music, in theater, in business, in media, in heaven or in hell, may your name, your absolute reality, be the greatest treasure of our lives. And may your eternal divine Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, crucified for sin, risen from the dead, reigning forever, be known and loved as the greatest person in this city. It was no compliment to the city of Nineveh, but it was a great mercy when you said to your sulking prophet Jonah, Should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? Oh, how kind you are to pity our folly rather than pander to our pride. Jonah could not fathom your mercy. His desire was the fire of judgment, and you stunned him and angered him with the shock of forgiveness. And have we not heard your son crying out to the city that would kill him? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Oh, how large is your heart towards cities in their sin and misery. Yes, we have heard you speak mercy to great cities. Did you not say to Jerusalem, this city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise and a glory before all the nations of the earth. They were not worthy, not any more than Nineveh or Minneapolis. But you are a merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. 
And what are we? Debtors whose only hope is grace. For we could never pay back the honor we have stolen from your name. How precious, then, is the lightning bolt of truth that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And for what have you saved us, Father? To what end did you forgive and cleanse and free and empower your people? You have told us. In the coming ages, I will show the immeasurable riches of my grace in kindness toward you in Christ Jesus. Yes, that is best. You are your best gift to us. But that's a long way off, Lord. What about now? For now, we live in Minneapolis, not heaven. This is our home away from home. We love our city. We love her winters, yes, we do, and cherish her spring. We love her great river and her parks, her stadiums and her teams. We love her lakes and crystal air. We love her beautiful cityscape. We love her tree-lined neighborhoods, her industry, her arts, her restaurants, and recycling. And we love her people, her old immigrant Swedes and her new immigrant Somalis, her African Americans, her Asians, her Latinos. We love those with so many genetic roots they don't know what box to check. We love her diversity, every human precious, because you made each one like yourself and for your glory. This is our home, away from home. We are sojourners and exiles in this city, so we ask again, for what have you saved us, here and now? Open our hearts to hear your answer, Lord. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Yes, Lord, yes. This is our heart for Minneapolis. We seek her welfare. We pray on her behalf. For those who knew George Floyd best and loved him most, bring them your consolation and direct their hearts to the God of all comfort. For Derek Chauvin, who put his knee on Floyd's neck for seven minutes until he died, we ask for the mercy of repentance and the judgment of justice. For officers Thomas Lane and Tu Tao and Alexander King, who stood by, we pray that grief and fear will bear the fruit of righteous remorse. And may the seriousness of the killing and the cowardice of complicity meet with proper penalties. For the upright police, who have watched all ten minutes of the unbearable video of Floyd's dying, who consider it horrific and inhuman, who find it unbelievable that Chauvin did not say a single word for seven minutes as the man under his knee pled for his life, and who lament with dashed hopes that they must start again from square one to rebuild what meager trust they hope to have won. For these worthy servants of our city, we pray that they would know the patient endurance of Jesus Christ, who suffered for deeds he did not do. For Police Chief Medaria Arredondo, Hennepin County Attorney Mike Freeman, our Mayor Jacob Fry, and our Governor Tim Waltz, we ask for the kind of wisdom that only God can give the kind King Solomon had when he said, 
cut the baby in half and discovered the true mother. May our leaders love the truth, seek the truth, stand unflinching for the truth, and act on the truth. Let nothing, O Lord, be swept under the rug. Forbid that any power or privilege would be allowed to twist or distort or conceal the truth, even if the truth brings the privileged, the rich, the powerful, or the poor from the darkness of wrong into the light of right. For the haters and the bitter and the hostile and the slanderers of every race, we pray that they will see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. We pray that the light will banish darkness from their souls, the darkness of arrogance and racism and selfishness. We pray for broken hearts, because a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. We pray that our city will see miracles of reconciliation and lasting harmony rooted in truth and in the paths of righteousness. We pray for peace, the fullest enjoyment of shalom flowing down from the God of peace and bought at an infinite price for the broken-hearted followers of the Prince of Peace. And as the scourge of COVID-19 has now killed 100,000 people in our nation, and still kills 20 people a day in our state, most of them in our city. And as the virus wreaks havoc with our economy and riots send lifetimes of labor up in smoke and the fabric of our common life is torn, we pray that the compounding of sorrows will not compound our sins, but send us desperate and running to the risen Savior, our only hope, Jesus Christ. O oh, Jesus, for this you died, that you might reconcile hopeless and hostile people to God and to each other. You have done it for millions by grace through faith. Do it, Lord Jesus, in Minneapolis, we pray. Amen.